science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week's story is from Wyatt Cenac. It was recorded in May 2016 at the Green Space in New York as part of a show we produced in partnership with Studio 360 with Kurt Anderson. I I grew up in Texas, which, uh, for those of you who don't know, Texas is one of those states that gets to determine what your children's textbooks are like. It's true. So now if you open your kid's textbook and there's something in there about intelligent design, you're welcome. (laughs) It's weird. Intelligent design, it's in textbooks now, and that's such a strange thing because I feel like it invalidates all the work of talented paleontologists like... William Hanna and Joseph Barbera. (laughs) (laughs) Through their work with the Flintstones, you know, realize that dinosaurs don't talk, well, brontosauruses don't talk, other dinosaurs. A pterodactyl that's also a lamp can talk, but (laughs) not Dino. Which, before any of you write in and say, hold on a second, Dino wasn't a brontosaurus, he was a snorkosaurus. That's true, but the taxonomy is basically the same. (laughs) I say all this to say, I grew up in Texas, and science was not one of those big things for me. My high school, science wasn't that big of a deal. Like, we had biology class, and we learned how to dissect a frog to use it for meat. And, you know, we had chemistry where we learned the compounds of the periodic table that we might need to use if we wanted to make our own ammunition. (laughs) But for the most part, science wasn't that big of a deal. And that's not to say that Texas people don't care about science or even that at my high school we didn't care about science. We did. It, it, you know, my high school, it was, it was a progressive place in its own way, and I learned a lot. It, it was actually in high school where I learned that sexuality is a fluid concept. And I went to a Catholic all-boys high school, and a priest taught me that. <laughs> oh, it, not just me. He taught a whole classroom of boys. <laughs> mm. He was my English teacher? Still not help. Here's the thing. So I had an English teacher who one day decided to explain to us that sexuality, it's fluid and that there is a spectrum. And he said, you know, people aren't just gay or straight. It's not as cut and dry as that. It's it's a spectrum. And to think about it as like a scale from one to ten and say one might be all the way gay and ten might be all the way straight. He said, most people fall somewhere in the middle there. And he said, you know, a seven might be if you were, say, sitting on the toilet and decided to stick your finger up your own butt. (laughs) This is a real thing he said. (laughs) 
And I'm sure there are some of you right now that are thinking, well, wait, if that's a seven, what's your eight and nine? For me in that moment, I was thinking, wait a minute, I've been to masses where you were handing out communion. And I also don't know what this has to do with the James Joyce book we were reading. So my high school, not the most science-heavy high, sc- uh, high school. It was uh, more, we were more into service. And that was one of those things, to graduate high school, we all had to complete 40 hours of community service, which is kind of a nice thing to do at an all-boys Catholic prep school. Uh, it's a nice thing, it's a nice way to give back to the community, but it's also a nice way to prepare your students for the day that they get arrested for a fraternity prank gone wrong, <laughs> which is going to happen. But so we all had to do community service, and I remember they gave us this list of different places that you could choose to, to serve at. And there were places like soup kitchens and old folks' homes. And full disclosure, I did not want to do any of that because I was 17 and I was selfish, but I also felt like I live in Texas. I don't know why we're serving hot soup to people. <laughs> in a place that's already hot. (laughs) And I don't want to go work at an old folks home and read to old ladies because that feels a little like driving Miss Daisy cosplay. (laughs) So I just wasn't into it. And I, I had to find something. And I found one thing on this list, and it was a huge list, and I found one thing, and I was like, oh, okay, this, this one is for me. This is the thing I want to do, because I fancied myself a, a man of reason. And this was, it was a place of science that was on this list, and I knew it was a place of science because it was called The Science Place. <laughs> and I wasn't sure what The Science Place was. I really hoped that it was maybe a lab where I could work with a scientist that maybe everyone else had just kind of written off as mad. (laughs) But I knew they were just driven. And then maybe I could work with that scientist, maybe, you know, work on some experiments. Maybe I bring a bag of spiders and we have a lab accident. (laughs) And I become the Incredible Hulk. You might be saying, hold on a second, Wyatt, what do spiders have to do with becoming the Hulk? Look, I'm not the scientist. I was just a kid who made a bad investment on some spiders. (laughs) The science place was not a laboratory. It was a children's museum. And given what I told you about Texas and how we're helping your textbooks... You should know, the Science Place, it was not a fancy museum. It was a rinky-dink little place that had some geodes and and a bunch of animatronic dinosaurs that didn't really work all the time. So much so that when we would have to explain to children, we would say, well, when the dinosaurs went extinct, so too did the technicians (laughs) and make the Tyrannosaurus Rex's head move. But so we were there, and so we had to give tours, and we had to give tours at the science place, and I was mainly stationed in the health sciences room. And the health sciences room was just a room dedicated to teaching children the dangers of drugs and alcohol. 
And they would do that. They just had a bunch of photos around of like what your lungs look like and then what your lungs would look like if you were smoking and like cirrhosis of the liver and all great things to send an eight-year-old home thinking about. And so that was mainly what was there. But the one centerpiece, there was a, a driving simulator. And the driving simulator, it uh, was a simulator to show you how you would drive if you were drunk. And to a 17-year-old, I didn't see it as much as a simulator as I saw it as a video game. (laughs) Because the way it would work, you would get in, and you would get in the car, and then you would punch in your gender and your height and your weight, and then you'd, uh, before you started driving, they would ask you, like, how many beers would you like? And so you put in a number, and then it'd ask you, would you like some harder alcohol? And you put in a number, and it'd kind of show you what you could choose from. And then it was like, how about some weed, some Coke? <laughs> Which I don't know how eight-year-olds knew all about that, but everything about it seemed like a setup to me. But so you put all this stuff in, and then you get to drive... And then, depending on how drunk or high you are, it affects how the wheel moves. Like, the wheel will get loose, and then it'll get, like, really stiff, and the brakes won't work sometimes. And sometimes you put on the gas, and it'll just floor it. And you really have to work really hard and pay attention so that you don't crash. And the moment that you would crash, the screen would just flash at you, and you would get reprimanded with this message about the dangers of drinking and driving. And that would happen anytime you crashed whether you crashed after a minute or whether you crashed after an hour. Which I kind of feel like if you did it for an hour, I feel like you shouldn't get a reprimand. You, you should get like just a, like a, wow. We got lucky. Let's not do that again. Also, let's maybe not drink so far away from home. And that was the thing, no matter how long you drove, like, the idea was to get home, but you never got home. And so I started to wonder, could you get home? Like, can you win this game? Is there, like, a kill screen that's, like, where you don't get killed? Like, a, like you know, like a video game version of a kill screen. And, I, and so now this became my experiment. And week after week, instead of helping children... <laughs> I would climb into the simulator and I would try to see if I could beat it. And I started out and I was like, you know what? What I'll do is I'll be the biggest person I can be. I'll be a seven foot tall man, like a seven foot tall, heavy set man, and I'll just have one beer. Let's see what I can do. I was like, could I drive for five minutes? And I could drive for five minutes. Could I drive for 10? Yeah, I could do 10, 15, 20. And I could drive for a really long time. And then I never got anywhere. And you can't just pull the car over and be like, I'm done. Like, even if you try to do that, it still crashes. And the screen flashes at you and is like, this is the dangers of drinking and driving. And to me, I was like, no, wait a minute. Like, you're telling me that A seven-foot-tall, 300-pound man can't have one beer? (laughs) Like, I'm basically Shaquille O'Neal right now. And you're saying I can't handle a beer? I handled the Eastern Conference. (laughs) 
So then it became a challenge. And I was like, well, what, what could, how could Shaquille O'Neal drive on two beers? Or how could Shaquille drive on like three beers and a couple shots of whiskey and maybe some weed? And the thing that started happening, I never got home, but I got really good at driving as drunk Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> So then I found myself thinking, well, who else could I drive really well drunk as? And I was like, what if I was a tiny lady? What if I was like Mary Lou Retton? And so I punched that in. And I got really good at driving as a four foot tall, 90 pound coked out lady. And then I just started to see, like, who else could I drive as? And I started just inputting different people. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, wait a minute. This is the scientific method. I get it now. <laughs> this is the experimentation phase. Got it. And I just kept doing it. And let me just say, at that time in my life, I didn't drink. I didn't do drugs. But I got really interested in trying to prepare myself for the time when I could do all of that. <laughs> And not just do it, that just in case if I wanted to go all out with it, if I wanted to become a junkie, I could still become the kind of junkie that other junkies would trust to get them home safely. <laughs> yeah, I might steal your stereo to sell it for drugs, but I'll get you home to the shelf where it used to be. And I got really good. I, I, I graduated high school, and I graduated high school with this sense that I'm a really great drunk driver. <laughs> which I feel like was not the intended purpose that they had when they made that machine. But I felt like, you know what, I never found that mad scientist. I became the mad scientist, and I gave myself superpowers and as an adult, I, like, trust me, I am an amazing, I could drive drunk so well. But at the same time, I also walked away realizing, you know what, this is my gift. This is, I've seen enough comic book movies, I've read enough comic books to know, this is my great power. <laughs> and with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> a responsibility that you don't have in a cab unless you throw up in that cab. <laughs> Which then it's only just throw $20, get out really fast, and run away. All right, thank you very much. That was Wyatt Sinek. Wyatt is a comedian and former correspondent on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. He's also released multiple stand-up specials, most recently on Netflix, and appeared on film and TV. He regularly hosts a stand-up evening in Brooklyn called Night Train with Wyatt Sinek. Follow him on Twitter at at Wyatt Sinek. Thanks to Studio 360 with Kurt Anderson for partnering with us on this show. If you've never listened, Studio 360 is a Peabody Award-winning radio show and podcast about creativity, pop culture, the arts and ideas, hosted by novelist and journalist and Spy Magazine co-founder Kurt Anderson. Follow them on Twitter at at Studio 360 Show. 
If you enjoyed today's story or are a fan of the podcast, please consider writing us a review on iTunes. It's a great way to help new listeners find the podcast, and we love sharing these stories. We're also grateful for the support of the Simons Foundation, who helped make all of this possible. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wack, Darren Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Skylar Bear, Shane Hanlon, Rosie Waldron, and Liz Neely, with help from Ariel Miller. The podcast is produced by Rose Eveleth, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to The Green Space for hosting the show, and to everyone for not drunk driving. Thanks for listening. Thank you.